morning. Everybody made it? So let me ask a question. How many people actually go to bed an hour earlier? Wow. And some of us just deal with it the next day, right? How many people just remember, only think of it when they set their alarm on when they go to bed? Right? I, I think, I, I don't know that I've ever actually gone to bed an hour earlier for Spring Forward. I don't know if that says about me, but it's not good. Anyway, appreciate you letting me have the opportunity to pinch hit for Cliff. Uh, since the beginning of the year, Cliff has been taking us through a series on engaging our world and uh, preaching on various characters from the Bible who engage their world. And I'm going to continue with that this morning, and I'm going to be talking about perhaps, obviously, the most engaging of all the people in the Bible, that is, of course, our Lord Jesus. And more specifically, one of his great, most profound teachings on engaging our world, and that's his statement, you are the salt of the world. It's a statement that's short and direct, but also capable of resonating with many people over generations, over centuries. It's rich in meaning, rich in meaning, and yet easy to remember and easy to apply. Jesus, this teaching speaks to those of us who are salty, those of us who are not so salty, and even those who don't think they're salty at all. It's got encouraging words and hopeful language, but also a warning. I think it's significant that Jesus' statement is a statement. It's not a question, it's not a command, it's not a suggestion. I think there's a lot to learn about what Jesus wanted us to do in terms of engaging our world by unpacking the statement. Um, this statement is in the ver- relatively early in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, so I'm going to read, it's actually just one verse. I'm going to read King James Version because that's kind of how I learned it when I was a kid, when I memorized it. And so I always just remember it that way. He said, ye, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden, be trodden underfoot of men. I think this statement, this teaching raises several questions we should answer about what he was referring to, but then also several exhortations or words of encouragement. I think the first question to answer is, who? Who is the ye? Who is the salt of the earth? Well, from a standpoint of the text, you have to go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set... His disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So it's a little unclear. It looks to me like he was with the multitudes, and then he separated himself, and the disciples came to him, and he taught his disciples. And is that just the 12, or is it a larger group of disciples? Um, I think the important takeaway is that he was clearly talking to his followers, his disciples, people who were followers of Christ, not not just people in general. He was talking to the people, the disciples, who 
In John 17, in the upper room, he would later say, greater things shall you do when I go back to the Father. He's talking to the people who he's going to give the great commission to, to go into the world and preach. He's talking to the people who, in Acts 1, after the ascension, angel's going to come and say, stay in Jerusalem, and you shall receive power, and you will be Jesus' witnesses throughout the world. And he's also speaking to followers of Christ in the generations and centuries after that. Now, you're probably looking at me going, well, isn't that obvious? And the answer is actually no, because there was a time about 100 years ago where the Sermon on the Mount was looked at as ethical teaching by an ethical man. The, The social gospel movement was based on this idea that if we all just we all just follow these teachings, and as man evolved and became better, then problems of, of injustice and poverty would be solved, and nations would live in peace with each other if we all would just act in this ethical way that's set forth in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think the events of the first half of last century, two world wars and everything else, really prove that to be wrong. And the truth of the matter is, is that the Sermon on the Mount is directed, and the salt of the earth teaching is directed to those of us who have been saved and are filled with the Holy Spirit. It is only through that and being filled with the Holy Spirit that we, in fact, can be salt. And then the other thing that it's not directed to, which some people have misunderstood, is it's not directed to some future millennial age. Some have looked at the Sermon on the Mount and said, Well, that standard is just impossible to keep. It's too daunting. So it must just be some standard by which Christ will uh, govern in a future age. And that's not the case either. Because clearly, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, and even specifically this verse about the salt of the earth, Jesus is speaking to people who are going to be living in a fallen world, a world that is deteriorating, a world that has corruption, a world that has sin. His teaching is directed to people who are going to be living in this world, not some future millennial age. But I think the most important thing to remember about this question of who is the ye, and if there's anything you write down in the outline in the section where I say who is ye, it's the ye are not perfect people. The ye are not sinless people. I think it's important that Jesus just said, you are the salt of the earth. He didn't say, you should aspire to be the salt of the earth, or eventually you'll be the salt of the earth, or someday you'll become the salt of the earth, that that's something to work towards. Jesus uses us as salt in our imperfect state, even in our reluctant state, and maybe in our rebellious state. If we are saved, we're fulfilled with the Holy Spirit, we are salt. We're not going to be salt when we figure all the problems out in our life and get rid of this sin, or someday we'll be salt. He said, you are salt. It's not imperfect people. It's not perfect people that are salt. It's not sinless people that are salt. We are salt. The next question the statement raises is, what is, what is the salt? What is, what's the salt he's talking about? I mean, I know what salt is, but what does he mean? What is it that is salt? What is it in us that is salt that he's alluding to? It's not our 
personality. It's not our physical abilities, our talents, our strength. I know it's not my good looks. This is not Saul. It's our character that is Saul. And what character is that? The character that's defined in the Beatitudes immediately before this verse. It's not a coincidence that this statement, you are the salt of the earth, comes right after Beatitudes. And because of that, I think it's important to review what those Beatitudes are. Jesus said, it's in your, it's in your bulletin in the outline. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, all in this order. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The Beatitudes are the character of those followers of Christ and being those who are followers of Christ and are being changed by the Holy Spirit. With the salt of the earth statement, Jesus is now beginning to describe not our character, but what our function is in the world, how we exist and engage our world. It is the Beatitudes exhibited in us that is salty. In particular, those Beatitudes that relate to engaging our world. So are we meek? Are we not putting ourselves first? Not fretting? Being patient? Not getting angry? Are we showing mercy to other people in terms of their sin and also their needs? Are we pure in heart in our dealings with other people? Are we peacemakers bringing reconciliation to people in our lives? Jim was a peacemaker with this, uh, with this mother bringing reconciliation in her life. Are living in a way that even results in us sometimes being persecuted for Christ's sake, being persecuted for being like Christ. That's what the salt is. And then I think the third question this statement raises is what is Jesus saying about the world? First, I think since one of the purposes of salt, certainly in that time, was as a preservative, Jesus is clearly saying that the natural world, the world on its own, is going to have a tendency on its own to spoil, to decay, to deteriorate, to become corrupt. And we have seen this played out in history from the beginning of time. From the time of Adam to Noah, there's corruption. God destroys the world. And yet, from from Noah, we get to Abraham, and we have Sodom and Gomorrah. Several generations later, we have Egypt and slavery. And then the people of Israel get to the Promised Land, and then there's corruption and deterioration there in the time of Judges. And then there's revival, there's 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 a kingdom, there's a monarchy, and the monarchy divides, and the people fall into sin, and the kings are corrupt, and the people are worshiping Baal. And then there's war, and there's destruction, and there's exile. So we've seen it in the history of man. There's a tendency on its own to decay, to spoil, to deteriorate, to become corrupt. And we see that today on both a macro and a micro level. On their own, corporations become corrupt. Nations fall apart and go to war with each other. Governments become corrupt. And on a micro level, families 
businesses left on their own will deteriorate, will fall apart, will decay. And so Jesus has called us to be something that preserves, that restores. Jesus also recognized that salt has a healing effect. So he recognized that the world was full of people who are broken, who are injured, who need healing, who need to be forgiven, who need to be released from the bondage of sin. And so salt also has the impact of bringing healing. And then third, salt serves the function of adding flavor. And so I think Jesus is recognizing that the world is full of people who are hungry and thirsty for something better, something more fulfilling. And that the the things of the world, the, the creature comforts of passion or possession or position are ultimately are empty and futile. And uh, the entire book of Ecclesiastes was devoted to discussing a world that is vain, that is futile, that is ultimately saltless. <clears throat> and I find that interesting. Why is it that unsaved people have this hunger and thirst? It's interesting that uh, in laying out the Sermon on the Mount, that right before the salt of the earth statement, but right after the Beatitudes, in between, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. And then from there, he goes right into talking about how this beatitudal, I think that's the word, beatitudal, beatitude behavior is salt. And it almost seems like a contradiction. How is it that the same thing can cause one response, be salty, but also cause people to hate and revile and want to persecute. And I think the answer to that is really lies at what the heart of the Beatitudes is. Ultimately, the Beatitudes are, as Chad just alluded to, the Beatitudes are the attributes of God. Jesus was giving us the attributes of God. Jesus was giving us God himself. I talked about this a little bit uh, in November when I preached on God's uh, goodness, that, that Jesus in the Beatitudes is giving us the path back to the garden, back to the way things were in the garden. Meekness, mercy, goodness, truth, peacefulness. And we've all, all of us have been created in God's image, and I think that means that something deep within us has an echo, has a longing, <clears throat> has a desire to go back to the way things were in the garden, all of us. So employees, the saved and the unsaved, all want their bosses to be fair and to be generous. Parents, saved and unsaved, want their teachers, want the Jim McGuire's to be truthful and to be honest. Drivers, saved and unsaved, want the police officers who pull them over to be just, and to be merciful. And both the saved and the unsaved clients want their attorneys to be honest. Imagine that. But when they experience that, when they experience that, something resonates deep within them. It's salty. It heals. It restores. It preserves. It tastes good. But yet, at the same time, there's that other response. <clears throat> there are others who experience it and resist it. 
The saltiness exposes their own wickedness. The saltiness points out another way that they should behave. It threatens how they've become used to living. And that salt doesn't resonate with those types of people. They hate it. So those people respond by reviling and hating and persecuting. And I think Jesus understood that. Jesus understood that our saltiness, if effective, will put people to a decision. They either are going to want more of it and want to be like it, or they're going to resist it and rebel against it. Some will do one, some will do the other. I think Jesus fully understood that. And that's what he, that's the effect that he wanted to have. And to the extent it has the effect of causing you to be persecuted, Jesus said to rejoice in that. Rejoice and be glad. It's fully expected that that's going to be the response sometimes. Uh, Jesus said in John 3, 19, for example, he said, men, he knew this would happen, men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. So, what's the takeaway? What are some of the exhortations we can take from this passage? I think there's, I put it down as good news and bad news. Well, bad news, good news, and great news. And if you're me, I usually say, well, tell me the bad news first. I want to know the bad news first. Well, here I think the bad news, if you want to call it that, is somewhat obvious. We're not as salty as we could be, right? We know that. We get distracted. We get caught up in the troubles of life. We focus on our own life. We focus on our own problems or our own goals. And we forget about what we should really be about. Or maybe it's not that we're busy or tied up in things. Maybe... We really don't want to distinguish ourselves or stick out, stand out the way saltiness does. So that's true. We all know that we can be a lot saltier than we are. Or maybe you're someone who just thinks, well, I'm really not that salty, and what I do won't really have much of an impact or won't make a difference. And for those of you who feel that way, the good news is, and it's really the title of my sermon, and one of the key takeaways I want you to get from this, is that you are a lot saltier than you think. And what I mean by that is I think that sometimes Satan wants to pull us into complacency by suggesting that what you do isn't that significant or what you do isn't that different from what a lot of other people do, won't impact people a whole lot. And I've learned that when I get an inkling from the Holy Spirit to do something, to call somebody up, <clears throat> to send somebody a thank you note, or send somebody an email, encourage someone, whatever it might be, that I need to do it. Because in fact, unlike what Satan would want me to think, not everyone around is thinking the same way is doing the same thing. And that when you do those things, the result can be that you are like a pearl in a sea of mud to the person. That voice of encouragement may be the only one something gets. The thank you note may be the only one something someone gets. And, or, or the only I'll pray for you email that someone gets. Um, a couple years ago, our firm had hired a woman uh, to come and kind of be a 
overseer of some of our junior associate attorneys and help with training and mentoring and career development. She was going to work in our LA office, and there was an email that went out that uh, Catherine will be starting today working in our LA office, and I just sent her an email that said, hey, Catherine, uh, you know, welcome to the firm, and glad to have you on board. Let me know next time you're in the Riverside office so we can, we can meet. That's all I said. A couple months later, when we were actually meeting and talking about something, she pulled me aside and said, I just want to say something to you. She, you know, when you sent me that email, you're the only attorney in the firm that sent me an email like that. <laughs> and when I sent the email, I certainly wasn't intending to. I just did it. I just felt the call to do it and it was a nice thing to do. I wasn't saying, I'm going to be the only one that sends her this email. I didn't have any idea that I would have that kind of impact or stand out. But I did. About, uh, about a month ago, I heard that, uh, it's another story, uh, there's, a, there's an, a consulting firm of appraisers in Orange County that I sometimes work with, and there's like three appraisers that are kind of the principals of this, of this firm. And about a month ago, I heard that the, the most senior guy, who's about in his mid-60s, had unfortunately gotten an infection, went to the hospital, had a turn for the worse, and un- quite unexpectedly died. And uh, I told, uh, said to my paralegal, you know, we should send a card to the, the other two, you know, the other two principals of the firm. So she got me a card, and I went ahead and wrote a note, something about, you know, so sorry to hear about Rick. He was, he was a nice guy. I'd always enjoyed talking to him, and um, this must be a really difficult um, transition for you. And so I'm just, you know, my hopes and prayers are, my prayers are with you as you go through this, navigate through this transition, something like that, and sent off the card. And about three days later, I got an email from uh, my para- paralegal saying, hey, I, uh, Kurt, Kurt was, the, was the one of the guys I sent the card to. Kurt just called me. And I said, oh, really? Did he uh, say anything about the card? And she said, yes, he was really surprised and really moved. And I got the sense that he was almost in tears at the end of the phone call. And so what was really neat about that is that I then was talking to the paralegal later, and I kind of was able to share with her, I said this very thing, which I'm sharing with you, is that I've learned that when I get an inkling to do something like that, I need to do it, because quite to the contrary, it's easy to think, well, they're getting lots of cards like that, I'm sure. The fact of the matter is, they may not be, and there may be that the very reason the Holy Spirit is calling me or calling you to do something like that is because it's going to stand out. So what was great about that whole story is I kind of got a two-for-one because I, I was able to bless this, uh, these, these two individuals at the loss of their, their partner. Then I also got a teaching moment with my paralegal because I was able to explain to her kind of the way I look at life. And I think uh, you can see from these examples the other corollary to the rule you are saltier than you think is also the rule that a little salt can go a long way. <clears throat> I've learned that it doesn't take a lot of salt deposited from you into someone's life to cause you to gain a position of trust or intimacy with a person. You could easily find yourself promoted to the status of one of maybe the only person or one of only a few people that that person can confide in or confess to or ask for prayer from. Um, I think sometimes we don't realize, I was talking to Charlie about this yesterday, but those of us who are in the church, we all kind of know lots of other people that 
have a relationship with God or the relationship with God matters to them. We, we all know lots of other people, right? At least like most of us do. But we forget that a lot of people in the world do not. And you may be the only person that they know that cares about spiritual things or prays or goes to church and, and, and that the relationship with God matters to them. I had a couple years ago a friend of mine, we were, we were idiots together in ninth and 10th grade, goofed off in school and and I moved out here, and I lost touch with him. And I was going back to East a couple of years ago, and somehow I tracked him down. And we got together and just talked about all kinds of things. And one of the things I shared with him is that, you know, I know I may have been an idiot when we were in 10th grade, but, you know, uh, my relationship with God is important to me, and it's really helped me in the last few years in a number of ways. About a year after that, I'm at an elders meeting at Cliff's house, and it's about 10, 10 o'clock at night, and I get a text from this guy that says, hey, we need to talk. My wife and I are splitting up. And so after the elders' meeting, it's now 11 o'clock. I'm in my car in front of Cliff's house. It's 11 o'clock my time. It's 2 in the morning in Philadelphia. And we're just talking about things and, um, you know, what happened, infidelity in the relationship and how he should respond. And, you know, just listen to his story and commiserating with him. And then he says, you're the only other person I've told. You're, you're, my mom and you are the only people that know about this. And I'm thinking to myself, how did I get on the metal podium of this guy's life? How did I get the silver medal right behind mom? I mean, you know, and, and, and I think it's just because I, it may be this guy's a construction worker in Philadelphia, and maybe his life is a cycle of working at the job, pizza and beer, going to bed, getting it up, doing it again, and the people, that's the life they live. They just, the cycle of just working and eating and consuming and doing it again, and maybe I'm one of the few people he's talked to that actually cares about prayer and my spiritual life. But my point is, it's amazing how easily you can get elevated in someone's life. And the other, one of the stories I want to share that I think illustrates this as well is, is Brian's story. We have the World Changer Moment website, and Brian shared a story a few weeks ago about asking that his home group pray for him because he wanted to be used. And I think the very next day, he goes into work, and he goes into the office of of a a vendor of his. Brian's been this guy's customer for 15 years, and the guy wants wants, wants to talk to Brian. And it turns out, this guy has some really significant things to share about problems in the business and uh, really difficult things that are going through. But it was Brian that he wanted to talk to about it. And he knew who Brian was, he said. And it ultimately re- resulted in Brian taking the risk, listening to the guy, and offering to pray with him. The guy was in tears and ends in hug. And now the relationship's changed. Great story. There's so many things I love about it. Brian's humility... And, um, but I was talking to Brian about this actually just yesterday. And I asked him, so, what was it about you? What do you think he saw in you over the years? And what Brian said was, well, this guy works in a tire repair and, and sales shop. And a lot of the customers are very pushy and, and, and uh, demanding and completely under, not understanding when things take longer than than told, well, your car's going to be ready in two hours, and it turns out it's not ready. And, 
They get a lot of angry customers. And over the years, I've understood that. And I've always been, you know, patient with them when things take longer. And, and, um, and I think that says a lot. That's salt. That's the Beatitudes. That's this guy seeing Brian's meekness, not putting himself first. This guy is seeing Brian's mercifulness because he's merciful to this guy and all the demands of running a, a business with lots of difficult customers. And he saw Brian's role certainly as a peacemaker. So it was that salt that put Brian in a position of being on the, as I said, on the metal podium of this guy's life when something bad happens. Who does he want to talk to? He wants to talk to Brian. I also mentioned that these passages present great news. And I think the great news is the promise in these verses. On the one hand, the Beatitudes as a whole can be almost seem discouraging because the standard is so impossible to keep. But yet, I also believe Jesus gave us these words because with the Holy Spirit, we can take on these qualities and be very salty, very salty indeed. We can transform our world and the lives of the people around us. And John, again, in John 17, Jesus promised that greater things shall you do when I return to the Father and leave you with the Holy Spirit. If we are God's children, we have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of Christ. And being conformed to the image of Christ is very, very salty. I have one other story that I want to share that I think really illustrates all these points. That we are a lot saltier than we think we are. That a little salt can go a long way. And that we have the capacity with the Holy Spirit to be very salty. And that story comes from Farmer Gary Asphalt, sitting in the third row. And... uh, Gary came to our men's Bible study on Wednesday night, and he told me about how he is leading a group of guys at his work in a study of the Purple Book. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Purple Book is a book that's out now, a little, pretty thin book, but it's basically a discipling tool. It's for new Christians. It's for people who want to learn about the Bible and Christianity. Each chapter is different parts of our theology Trinity, you know, spiritual gifts. It just, it's a way, it's a tool to lead and disciple a new Christian. And I've heard from several people that it's a great resource. But Gary's leading this study now of, he's leading five guys in this study after, after work once a week. And um, I, re- I really recognize there's got to be something behind this, a lesson about salt. Because that kind of thing, you know, doesn't just happen out of the clear blue sky. And so I began asking Gary questions, trying to figure out what the salt, the foundation of salt was behind this. And, and uh, I was trying to get a sense of what kind of a person Gary is in his work. He, and if you don't know Gary, Gary owns and runs an RV parts and accessories store in Ontario. And he's got about 15 people that work for him, different shifts. So, so Gary started saying things like, well, I always play Christian music in the store um, people know I go to church. 
People know that I often take Fridays off to spend them with Patty. Uh, people know that I like to support missionaries. I said, well, okay. So that's all, that's all well and good. But I think standing alone, it wouldn't mean that much if they didn't see something more. So I, it was almost like I was taking his deposition. So I said, so tell me more. And then Gary says, well, I usually ask guys how their families are doing. And I went, aha, now we're getting somewhere. I said, what else? And then Gary says, well, this is kind of dumb, but I said, no, 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 tell me, what is it, what is it? And he says, well, I usually bring bags of oranges in to the guys as well. I said, I love it. Salty oranges, right? It's great. Salty oranges. And then Gary says, oh, yeah, and then there's the goat milk. And I said, tell me about the goat milk, Gary. I can't wait to hear this. And Gary says, well, there's one of my guys named Johnny. He's a 20-year-old guy, and and, uh, he got his girlfriend pregnant out of wedlock. And they did the right thing, and they had the baby. And then after the baby was born, the baby uh, uh, had an allergic reaction to milk. And so Gary says, well, maybe, I know this has worked with other babies before, maybe you should try goat milk. So Gary starts bringing goat milk in for this employee of his who him and his girlfriend had a baby out of wedlock, and I think the goat milk actually solved the problem. And then I asked Gary, I said, so Gary, is Johnny one of the guys that's now in your Purple Book devotional study? And he said, yes. You see, Gary thought he was just being good old Gary when he asked his employees about how their families are doing or when he brought oranges in, or when he brought goat milk in. And, and the truth of that matter is, he, he was being Gary. A Gary that's a changed person filled with the Holy Spirit, exhibiting the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes of humility. To ask your employees how they're doing. Not all bosses do that. And uh, mercifulness towards Johnny with the baby out of wedlock, uh, having an allergic reaction to milk. And, um, and just a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Gary was exhibiting all those things. Very salty indeed. Now, and I think it's just a great story that exhibits everything that we're talking about, about what it means to be salt and then be light. Now he's being light with the purple book, but there was a foundation of salt behind it. Now, Jesus also recognized, and maybe this speaks to some of you, that we can lose our saltiness. He posed a question. If salt has lost its savor, from what shall it become salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be trodden underfoot of men. Now perhaps today, you feel like that describes you. You feel completely saltless. Maybe the stresses of life have gotten to you, and you feel like all you can do is keep your head above water. You feel even, maybe even feel downtrodden by others. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a sin you're struggling with or sinful desire that's getting in the way. So what does Jesus mean in this verse? Is he saying that we can never recover our saltiness? Is he really saying that we're just good for nothing when we reach that point? You know, it's interesting, he, he asks the question, but he doesn't really ever 
directly answer it. He asks a question, from what shall it become salted? And what's the answer? How do we become salty again? And I think it's clear that we can't just do it. One of the things he's trying to suggest is it can't just resalt itself. We can't just do it ourselves. I think the reason maybe Jesus didn't answer this question directly is because he had already provided it earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount when he laid out the Beatitudes. So if you're feeling completely saltless this morning, my word to you would be that we can return to spiritual saltiness by returning to being poor in spirit. We can recover our spiritual saltiness by recognizing and declaring our spiritual bankruptcy. So for those of you this morning who are feeling in that category, the saltlessness, the void of salt, let me encourage you by suggesting that in some ways the recognition of that is the first step back. You've already made the first step back by recognizing that you've lost your savor. You've made this first step back because being poor in spirit is recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy, that on your own you have debts that you can't pay, that you need a savior, you need forgiveness. It's the beginning of a process that continues with mourning and really coming to grips with sin in your life and surrendering. Jesus' message is not for you to feel saltless, is not that you are good for nothing and doomed to be stomped on by the people in your world, although you may feel that way. Jesus would call you to return and repent and be renewed with recognition of what he has done for you on the cross and what and who the Father has really called you to be and wants you to be. What the Father really wants for you is to be salty and to live a fulfilling life and to do great things for the kingdom. So if the last part of that verse describes you Then the next part, the next verse for you is to go back to verse 3. Blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit. And start over. It's almost like a board game where, oh no, you got to go back, you know. But don't be frustrated by that. It may sound frustrating. The truth of the matter is, we all have to go through that process. All of us who are followers of Christ have been there and we have to cycle back and we get to a point where we feel like we're just not doing anything right. And the way back is back to being poor in spirit. It's a process by which we grow, and it's a process by which we are sanctified. So yes, Jesus calls us to be salt, and we could be a lot saltier. But take heart, if the Holy Spirit is working in you, and you are exhibiting the Beatitudes in your workplace with your friends, in your business, with your family, you are saltier than you think. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to you and puts you in places and puts thoughts in your head to do things, I would really encourage you to be obedient to that tugging because those could be extremely salty moments that the Holy Spirit is placing on you and places he wants to put you. So be obedient to those callings because don't make the mistake of underestimating how much 
of an impact. That's, that's like, it's not about you. It's about what God wants to do in you. It's about what God wants to do with the saltiness he's implanted in you. So don't make the mistake of underestimating how much of an impact a little dose of salt can have on people and how much it can make you stand out and be different because that's what we want to be. That is what salt is. It stands out. It's noticed. It, it provides flavor. It distinguishes us. It causes people to notice who we are and hopefully want to be part of that. And if you truly feel like you've lost your savor or saltless, then again, the recognition of your spiritual bankruptcy, the attitude of being poor in spirit, already puts you on the path back to saltiness. And if you're one of those people, I, others here, Jim, others in church, would be more than happy to pray with you and to help you back on the path to saltiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this body of believers, for people that want to change our world, engage our world, and be salt, and then be able to share light. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that you give us a desire and a passion for that, that as we go through the week, we know that you're going to put thoughts in our head, inspire us to do things, to call people, to encourage people, to write thank you notes, to send encouraging emails, to visit people, to share our resources, to help people in need. Just give us a spirit that wants to obey that and doesn't question it or underestimate it or poo-poo it, that we would be obedient servants to your calling, recognizing that you have very salty works planned for us to do for the kingdom. So as we go forward, Lord, just give us a spirit of excitement about that and obedience, and uh, may we indeed bring great glory to you, God, as we go forward into our world, engaging them and giving them just a taste of the salt uh, that is your kingdom. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.